0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, John Prado. in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Thailand is about to hold its first election since the military seized power five years ago. The only hitch is that the generals are trying to influence the outcome and anyone who criticizes the ruling royal family can be thrown in prison. And we have the answer to a question often asked of economist journalists, namely, is it possible to use dance music to age whiskey? We take a sip. But first, Last night in Brussels, European leaders rejected British Prime Minister Theresa May's request to extend Britain's departure from the EU by three months. Instead, they came up with a plan that spares Britain from crashing out of the EU next Friday, on March 29th, but only offers a short reprieve. European Council President Donald Tusk announced the
1: plan. Our decisions envisage two scenarios. In the first scenario... That is, if the withdrawal agreement is passed by the House of Commons next week, the European Council agrees to an extension until the 22nd of May.
0: But if Mrs May can't persuade members of Parliament finally to vote in favour of the withdrawal agreement she painstakingly negotiated with the EU, another scenario kicks in.
1: The second scenario, that is, if the withdrawal agreement is not approved by the House of Commons next week, the European Council agrees to an extension until the 20th of April. 12th 12th of April. <laughs> <laughs> While expecting the UK to indicate a way forward. That timeline would give Britain about
0: two more weeks to decide what to do if it can't agree a withdrawal deal. If it does not negotiate a further extension, it would legally leave the EU without a withdrawal agreement on April the 12th. ...the economic consequences of that could be pretty terrible. Good morning. Mrs May made a statement after midnight... ...appearing to accept the EU's terms.
2: That in order to provide time for the UK Parliament... ...to agree and ratify a Brexit deal... ...the date of our departure will now be extended to the 22nd of May.
0: Amid the procedure and the announcements... ...there were moments that portrayed some emotion... Mrs May seemed to admit that she made a mistake in a speech on Wednesday, implying members of her parliament were responsible for failing to approve a Brexit deal.
2: I know MPs on all sides of the debate have passionate views and I respect those different positions. Last night I expressed my frustration and I know that MPs are frustrated too. They have difficult jobs
0: to do. And Donald Tusk was asked whether British MPs, who failed to vote for the withdrawal deal, deserved a special place in hell.
1: According to, to our Pope, the hell is still empty, you know, and it means that there's that, a lot of space as well. An aide proposed
0: ending the press conference there, but European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker got the last word in. Don't go to hell. The momentary levity belied the seriousness
3: with which the EU is treating Britain's exit. It was a remarkable spectacle last night in the European Council building in Brussels, where you had Theresa May go and plea, apparently rather unconvincingly, before European leaders Uh, before being told to or asked to leave the room so that the remaining 27 could uh, discuss what would happen. Jeremy Cliff reports from Brussels for The Economist and was previously the Budget columnist covering British politics. It was just an incredible reminder of how far Brexit has come from the uh, sunny promises of uh, taking back control. You had a British Prime Minister sitting effectively in an ante-room for five hours last night while the leaders of other countries discussed her country's political and economic fate. And what was the atmosphere like at the talks yesterday? I'm sure you've been talking to sources who were
0: there or diplomats who've been briefed. What did... EU leaders make of what Mrs May had to say?
3: And, and then what happened afterwards? The overwhelming impression, and this encompassed both those who were inclined to be more generous to the UK and those who want to play hardball, was of uh, something close to despair at Theresa May's presentation uh, yesterday afternoon. There was a sense that, that was communicated by diplomats coming out of uh, the, the talks that Theresa May didn't really know what she would do if she lost another vote on her negotiated Brexit deal in the House of Commons, that she was evasive, that she was brittle and inflexible, and that essentially she alone could not be relied on to get this deal across the line. And I think out of that despair came this... uh, frankly, quite magnanimous decision that Britain should be not only allowed a bit more time to work out what course of action it wanted to take, but potentially quite a lot more time. Um, there's talk of a, of a long extension, uh, well into uh, possibly even next year, so that the Brits can actually develop a, a, ma- a majority for a certain sort of Brexit.
0: So where we are now is Theresa May has to get a deal through Parliament that's been rejected twice before you used to cover British politics. Does that seem like a feasible way out of this situation? Or we're going to be back here in a week's time?
3: Um, not in the short term. I mean, the, 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 cons- the cons- looking across the channel and also uh, talking to colleagues who'd come over from London uh, for the summit last night, it seemed extremely unlikely that Theresa May's deal would pass the Commons on, on a third vote. The question really is what happens next? Uh, you know, will she uh, allow a series of indicative votes to take place, which could potentially suggest majorities for a certain course of action? There's been talk that a slightly softer Brexit uh, would allow um, Labour voters... Labour MPs to come on board and and, and, and back a course of action along with more moderate Tories. Um, The greatest uncertainty and one of the subjects that was most being discussed in the Justus Lipsius building, uh, where all the journalists were gathered here in Brussels last night, was what would Theresa May do having lost that vote again? And it's honestly very unclear. There are some who say that she would prefer to exit the EU without a deal and cope with that, the chaos that that would entail. There are others that say that her pragmatism would prevail and that she would endorse a long extension. And there are others that say that she might simply resign and let a caretaker prime minister take over, allow for elections in the Tory party. And I was speaking to someone in London yesterday who knows her thinking um, pretty well on, on, on most matters. And his sense was that her opinion is on a knife edge about this So some of the EU leaders mentioned the European elections,
0: elections to the European Parliament as a factor in this timeline. Can you explain what impact they have on the process?
3: Yes, if if Britain stays in the EU until the European elections, which start on the 23rd of May, there's a lot of concern that 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 could cause legal uncertainty and perhaps even chaos. And I think particularly among people like Emmanuel Macron, the sense was that Britain had to decide either it was going to participate in those elections and possibly stay in the club for, for a while longer while it sorts itself out, or it has to be out clearly out of the club by that point and that that dictated the dates that they set so britain has to make its mind up by the 12th of april whether or not it wants to just get on with exit whether with a deal or without or whether it wants to stay in for quite a lot longer in which case it simply has to accept european elections but Uh, Certainly seen from this side of the channel, that's uh, something that will be quite hard to sell back in the UK. Theresa May has told people time and again that Britain will be out of the EU by this spring. And Brits then invited to vote in European elections in the summer would sit very strangely with those repeated commitments. So if we get the worst case scenario, Britain falls out,
0: Brexit on April 12th with no deal. What does that mean for the UK? I mean, we know the civil service is starting to implement no-deal emergency measures.
3: How, how prepared is the country for that? My sense is it's not brilliantly prepared, not least because these preparations have only have only been taking place really since about last summer. There's talk of a, a sort of crisis command unit being set up in a nuclear bunker below Whitehall, which some would say, doesn't fill one's heart with uh, reassurance. But um, there's, there will be a, a great logistical f- uh, challenge before Britain's leaders if, if Britain does leave the EU without a deal. Um, not only would there be chaos at ports, because suddenly all of Britain's um, trade and customs agreements would drop, you'd also have issues with things like financial regulation, um, air traffic rules. All of Britain's Uh, all the codes and the laws and the regulations that ultimately make Britain's relations with its close neighbours work would fall out of the sky. And I think that would... People haven't really anticipated... Quite what the economic and the political uh, consequences of that would be. It would be it would be a searing moment in Britain's national history and could be transformative on on the country's politics. I mean, I I, I, I can recall only the the nineteen seventies uh, crisis uh, when Britain was in a great very deep economic hole as a, as a relevant comparison. I mean, it's it's the sort of crisis that could put the governing party out of power for a generation. All right, Jeremy, well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Thank you.
0: Thank you. After five years of military rule, elections will be held in Thailand on Sunday. And while there's much anticipation, there's also some well-founded scepticism about how democratic these elections will actually be.
2: There is enormous excitement in Thailand at the moment about the fact that finally people are going to have an opportunity to cast a vote.
0: Miranda Johnson is our Southeast Asia correspondent.
2: It's the first time that Thais have been to the polls in a number of years and certainly since there was a coup in 2014. I went to several rallies supporting the poor Thai party which is associated with Thaksin Shinawatra, the ousted former prime minister. I also attended several rallies which were in support of Palang Pracharat, which is a new party formed essentially to support the junta's bid to retain power in Thailand. And it's a lot of fun. There's music, there's a little bit of dancing, there's chanting and sort of chorus repeating. But overall, it's a very welcoming atmosphere, regardless almost of the party that you're going to see speak.
0: Miranda, can you give us the backstory? How did Thailand get here?:
2: It's a longish tale which really began in 2006, when Thaksin Shinawatra, who was prime minister, was ousted in a coup. And since then, his supporters have been locked in a battle, they're known as red shirts with more traditional elites in Thailand, royalist elites, military elites, who are known as Yellow Shirts. And in 2014, a group of army generals, Yellow Shirts, ousted a government run by Mr. Thaksin's sister. Of course, that inspired big protests. And there hasn't been an election since May 2014 when there was the coup. So this is the first time that Thai voters in a number of years have got a chance to cast a ballot.
0: So these elections are coming after five years of military rule in Thailand. How free and fair are they likely to be?
2: The one thing that the generals have learned, it seems, from the many, many coups which have taken place in Thailand uh, over the past few decades is that they want to learn from the mistakes of others and hold on to power. This time round, they got a constitution passed in a, a very tightly controlled referendum in 2016, which basically stacks the parliament in the favor of the regime. They've introduced onerous campaigning laws, which may trip up opponents of the ruling junta. We've also seen one party which uh, supported Mr. Taksin dissolved in recent weeks. So it's very difficult to be a politician running against the regime at the moment. So it's hardly a free and fair election. So
0: why, given all this, why hold an election at all now? You know, why does the military feel the need to have this kind of managed democracy rather than just carry on giving the orders themselves?
2: So that's a very interesting question, and it it draws us into one of the central mysteries of Thailand, which concerns the monarchy and the role of the monarchy and the power of the monarchy in the country. And the one theory is that King Vajiralongkorn, who took over after his father died in 2016, after a very long and popular reign, that the new king actually quite wants. Elections and that he has sort of signalled from the top that they should happen. Uh, Another theory is that as Thailand is the chairman of ASEAN this year, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, it doesn't look good to be in that role when you're not a democracy. Another thought is that the king, whose coronation approaches in May, wants to be crowned in a country which is back on the road to some semblance of democracy. So lots of theories being bandied about.
0: Miranda, you mentioned that at the rallies you went to report at, people seem pretty excited about getting the chance to vote again. Are Ordinary Ties aware of the constraints around this election, How, how unfree it's going to be?
2: So that's precisely the question that I put to a lot of people at rallies I went to in the northeast of Thailand in the past few weeks. I asked people to sort of give me a score on how open and how how sort of fair they thought the election would be and also, you know, how confident they are in it. And no one expressed full confidence in the election, even people at rallies for Palang Pracharat. Which is a party that's been created essentially to support the ruling regime. So even people considering, you know, supporting the status quo, are fully aware that things are not as as free and fair as they as they might have been in the past. Alternatively, at pro Thai rallies, you have people sort of kind of much more inflammatory and much more inflammatory statements and the crowds were in fact asked by some of the poor Thai leadership you know who's afraid of the hunter, and then you know thousands of people in, in the crowd kind of putting up their hands in response so I don't think that there is complete confidence in the integrity of this election but I think at this point Thai voters are fatigued and something is better than nothing
0: And it's important to emphasise, isn't it, that Thailand's democracy hasn't always been a basket case. You know, expectations on Thailand are a bit higher when it comes to democracy than they are in some of the other countries in the region.
2: Yes. And I think that for a long time, it was one of Southeast Asia's kind of most zappy and dynamic countries. And it was modernising in a particularly impressive way. It was a role model of sorts. And alongside that thailand was the only country in southeast asia to avoid being colonized and it was the first to become a democracy in 1932 so thailand once led the way for other countries when it came to things like democracy and rule of law and now we have a changed situation and one in which thailand has actually lost its way
0: all right miranda thank you
2: thanks john
0: There are a few things that startups have not tried to creatively destroy. Entrepreneurs have changed how we work, how we talk to each other, even how we fall in love. Now, a batch of startups are taking on something that at least in the eyes of many people from Scotland and Kentucky is considered almost sacred: whiskey. Henry Wilkins writes about all sorts of things for The Economist, but recently he's been thinking about new ways of making whiskey, and he's got a bottle in for us to try.
4: Henry, what is this? So this is Hudson full-grain bourbon. And how is that whiskey made? It's unusual because it's been aged using music. In fact, it's actually dubstep music. They play um, dubstep through low-frequency speakers placed around the warehouse, and it agitates the uh, whiskey whilst it's in the barrel. And the idea is that by doing that, the whiskey will make more uh, contact with the barrels more frequently and age much quicker as a result of it. So, uh, yeah, this is dubstep aged whiskey. Let's, Let's give it a go.
0: All right, Henry, let me pour you some. And I guess for the sake of impartiality, I would have some myself. Right. It tastes of
4: whiskey. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm not much of a bourbon drinker, but this, uh, this tastes pretty good to me.
0: This could be the beginning
4: of your ruin. <laughs> Henry,
0: explain to us why this is a science story rather than a booze story.
4: One of the characteristics of, of making whiskey is that it needs to be aged for often around 10 years to be considered decent whiskey. Distilleries in the US are using new science and technology in order to speed up the aging process.
0: Why would you want to speed up the aging process anyway? I mean,
4: there's been done a certain way for a really long time. It tastes pretty good when it's done right. Well, for one thing, uh, the aging process is expensive. It also makes it very difficult for trying new recipes because obviously if you want to try a new flavor or whatever, then you need to wait 10 years for it in order to try it. And if it's bad, then you've lost 10 years. And (laughs) if it's it's good, then you've still got another 10 years to wait to make more. So uh, there's all sorts of disadvantages.
0: Henry, it's not just dubstep that's being used to speed up aging of whiskey. There's some other fancy techniques as well, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a whole raft of different techniques like inserting flavorings from yeasts, plants and barrelwoods into an ethanol. There's a whole raft of, of techniques that are being tried. And Henry, how have drinkers received these funkily aged brews? Obviously, there's different kinds of drinkers. Certainly for the connoisseurs, some of the whiskies, in fact, probably most of these fast-age whiskies, raise a few eyebrows, to put it lightly. But others are getting excellent reviews, like Lost Spirits creates a whiskey called Abomination, Sayers of the Law, and that has actually been very well received and has actually got some rewards. And how is that made? That is probably the most interesting one from a science point of view. They... Actually put years of research into figuring out the way that the whiskey reacts with the wood in the barrel. So the wood, it breaks down as the whiskey ages, and as it does so, it takes out a lot of the unpalatable parts of the whiskey, and it also puts in a lot of palatable parts as well. The crucial thing, according to these guys at Lost Spirits, is the wood being broken down in the whiskey, and they use what they call a reactor, which uh, heats the whiskey, and they also apply a light to the whiskey as well.
0: So speeding up the aging process sounds like you would be able to sell the whiskey much cheaper, right? Is that what happens in practice, or are these whiskies still really expensive?
4: In practice, at this stage, no, that's not what happens. The whiskies are roughly similar cost-wise to produce as barrel-aged whiskies, but we obviously have to bear in mind that they're being produced on a very small scale at the moment. Guys at Lost Spirits are saying that if it was done on a much bigger scale, then it would become cheaper than barrel-aging. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Henry.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real
4: digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com